0: Father, this morning as we come to Ephesians one, three to six, uh, Holy Spirit, you know my heart and you know my fear of man, and uh, and I pray that you would overcome that. I confess to you that uh, that you are often not my first consideration, and I want to repent of that idolatry, and I ask that you will help me to do that this morning. I pray that you would cause your truth and your word to bring life and joy and blessing. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray you would rule and do the ministry that Jesus has given you in teaching and guiding into truth. Please do that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Because our study in Ephesians is part of our study through the pastoral epistles so that we can know, according to 1 Timothy three fifteen, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. We Spent most of last year, God, I think, in First Timothy. We have a, a vision, we have a mission as a church. We say, for the glory of God. That's Psalm one fifteen one: Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. The glory of God. For the glory of God, we will build the church. Jesus' mission in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the great commission to make his name great among all nations. For the glory of God, we'll build the church both local and global. The local footprint with a global outreach, a global scope. How do we do that? This is the mission part. This is how we seek to achieve the vision of the glory of God, building His church, both local and global. We say by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. That abiding John 15, arising from, connected to a root source, radical relationship with Christ, where we remain in Christ, where we live in Him, abide in Him, enjoy Him. And through that, Jesus promises the fruit of the gospel, which will be His glory in building His church among all nations. That's what we're here for. And as part of our study in the pastorals and in Ephesians, we are there to make sure that we see and savor and know and stay on task. To accomplish the vision God has given us from His Word for His glory in the building of the community, of His kingdom, the church. We see the Father and His grace has been mobilizing workers to the mission of being and producing radical followers of Jesus for 12 years now. He's grown it. He's expanded it in pioneering work in our people group mobilizing workers to some, gosh, I was asking Emmett this morning, I'm not even sure, I wrote down here some like 11 different nations. It's like The more we focus on our people group, the more God raises people up to go to other nations. So we've lost count, we don't even know where they all are. The Lord is doing that work of sending folks to plant a fellowship in Portland, and that is being worked on. We're engaging in local evangelism, working with local ministries, weaving into the fabric of the community to be a part of the kingdom, and a kingdom agent, and solving our challenges, and making disciples. And now, Father, is still growing it and expanding it still more. But lest we lose sight of whose we are, and what we're here to do, and maybe get caught up in our own success, we have to keep our eyes in the manual, and we have to make sure that we do what the manual says to do, we believe what the manual tells us to believe, and that we apply it the way the manual teaches to apply it. And so we remember as we come to Ephesians chapter 1, our study through the epistles, and gosh, we will get back to 2 Timothy when we finish with Ephesians, as we come to this passage, we remember that Ephesians... You remember this. This is like from, from the last three weeks. And this is footnoted. If you're following along in the blog, you can see the footnote there. And go back and, and, and read this and keep this lens in front of your eyes. We remember that Ephesians explains what the church's cosmic role is as the body of the cosmic Christ. Ephesians reveals the position and the job description of the church in affecting God's new order, His kingdom. And it answers this all-important question of what does it mean to be in Christ? Those 33 times Paul uses that phrase or its synonym, in Christ. And then what does that demand of us? So last week, we saw the blessing of the Father to transform sinners like Saul into servants like Paul. We saw the blessing of the Father to give grace and peace to those who were once sinners but now saints and were unfaithful but now faithful in Christ Jesus because of Christ's work on the cross in their place for their sin. And then we saw how because of repentance and faith He has blessed us in Christ, placed us in Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. That's last week. This week Paul... Begins expounding those remaining 33 times he uses in Christ or its synonym. To make clear, and hear this, to make clear our blessing in Christ. And our role in bringing about his kingdom and its demands of us. But Paul starts in a really, really, really strange place for some of us. So let me read it for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. the glorious nature of this text. No matter the grace expounded in this text, there is a weight and a cloud that I personally feel in preaching through this text. That weight and cloud is not because the text causes me consternation. It's not because I reject the notion of the text. I embrace the truth found in this text and to the best of My capacity is granted by the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit and the best I can make of His Word. I understand that to the best of the capacity He's given me. And I glory in it. And I taste the grace of God in it. However, the way some fight against and get angry over and refuse to have fellowship with over these passages creates a thick cloud. Heck, there are times I'm not even allowed to speak in some places because... Of texts like these and the willingness to preach such texts. And because we're Baptists, we have fellowship with Presbyterians. So even in our own association, denomination, there is rejection. I like Presbyterians. And some of you guys are former Presbyterians, you know, turned Baptist. Glory. But that cloud never really goes away. Never really goes away. I wonder how many view Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 as the spiritual blessing that Paul says it is. I mean, that's what he says. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Then he unpacks these passages and he says what he says. And I think oftentimes many may secretly wish that the Bible never said such things maybe seek to find passages that may, when taken out of context, contradict these passages so as to assuage the challenge in our chest. Many avoid passages like this because they don't feel very devotional, right? Because having to think and having to adjust and having to wrap my soul and my mind around the biblical text is difficult. And we all know reading... A devotion is supposed to make me feel cozy inside, not actually move me to Christ's likeness. You feel the dripping sarcasm there. I put a note here to say that, so if you felt the sarcasm. The reality is that avoiding these passages helps us to forget the garden and the deception that propagated the rebellion. You, you will be like God. Take it, eat it. You'll be like Him. The reality is that avoiding such passages helps us forget the consequences of Adam's folly. The day you eat of it, you will live on. It'll be okay. Just one little mistake. The day you eat of it, you will die. We just perhaps don't want to admit that we don't want God to be God. We don't want the consequences to be what they are. We want to be Him, not creatures made by Him. And we sure possibly don't want to admit that we're broken and have the potential for infinite evil as creatures under the wrath of God apart from the justifying work of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we're like the tenants in Luke chapter 20, verse 9 to 18, who don't want the honor of the vineyard to actually run the vineyard. So we beat and shame His servants and kill His son that he sends so that we can have the vineyard. But the truth is, as Jesus said at the end of that parable, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the challenge in this passage is not to exegete the text. The texts are not complicated Greek. That's kind of where my master's degree lies. It's it's not some crazy grammatical structure with multiple definitions to words determined by context. I wish Paul had made it that way. Perhaps we could wiggle our way out of it. But the text is fairly straightforward. The challenge is not that. The challenge is that Paul is operating off of a theological framework regarding the nature and state of man apart from Christ that he's going to expound in chapter 2. And he assumes his readers know because remember, in our introduction to Ephesians, he lived with them for three years, Acts 19, in Ephesus, as he taught them and expounded the Scriptures and encouraged and shaped them. So Paul just launches into our blessings in Christ, believing that the foundation of their state apart from Christ is laid well. That may not be the case for most modern readers of Paul. So let me tell you my story with some of the passages of the Old Testament. And from Paul here telling this story for me. I would argue this is Jesus' story of redemption. And everyone who's believed the gospel sitting in this room shared this story, if we'll be honest. So I even have a little title here. It's on on the notes if you're looking along on the blog. Everyone's story who is in Christ. This is your story. This is my story. If you're in Christ, if you've turned from the rebellion, you've believed on the Lord Jesus, this is your story. There are different nuances to our stories, but this is yours, this is mine. Genesis 6-5. Genesis 6-5. The Lord knows my wickedness was great, and He knows that the intentions of my heart were only evil continually. Psalm 14, 1-3, which Paul will quote in Romans chapter 3, when laying out the case for man's state before God. The Lord looked down on me, and He saw that I didn't understand my state, and I wasn't seeking after Him. I wasn't doing good and I wasn't doing good like everyone else who was in Adam and not coming after Christ. No goodness in me. Psalm 51.5, not only was I not good, even in sin did my mother conceive me. It's not like I just learned bad behavior. We're not atheists. Atheists describe the lack of moral aptitude as the result of cultural influences on man who is, in essence, perfect. We don't believe that. We're Christians. We have a Bible. We recognize that what David said in Psalm 51 is true, that even in my conception, it is sinful, not my conceiving being sinful, but the fact that I'm conceived and I exist, I'm sinful because I come from Adam. The day you eat of it, you will die. It's not like God was joking with Adam. I was just kidding. Do over. Reset. No, Adam, the day you do it, the day you eat of it, you will die. Romans 5, 12 to 14, I was conceived in sin because of Adam and the resultant. Accounting of Adam's rebellion to my account. You see, this is what Adam's exercise in the garden got me. It's not like Adam's sin just affected him. And this is why we say in the fellowship, it's not like my sin just affects me. Sin is never isolated from the whole. When I rebel against God, it affects the spiritual climate that we live in together in a community. When you sin, it affects the spiritual climate. Of the community we dwell in. Adam's decision in the garden got me and you death. Cain killed Abel. Rebellion against God will be the normal default for all the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Even the ground, the dirt broke. The sky broke. Everything is at odds with Christ, its creator, including his image bearers. Ephesians 2, 1-3, I was dead toward God and walking according to the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience. I was the walking dead. I was not in a neutral state. I was a servant of my master, the evil one. My soul was unfeeling and incapable of doing good and deciding ultimate good. I was in my dead state and I was a willing participant in the rebellion. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. I was blinded by the rebellion and the active work of my master, the evil one. I couldn't see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I walked in blindness, groping around for whatever I could find that would satisfy my tastes at the moment. Jeremiah 17, 1 to 9, sin was Jeremiah 17, 1 and then Jeremiah 17:9. Sin was written on my heart with a diamond point and my heart was, as a result, desperately sick and couldn't be tamed by me or any other man. Ezekiel 36, 24-27 But God, being rich in mercy, would, at that moment in Jekyll Island, Georgia, in the preaching of the doctrine of justification by Louis Giglio, this fresh-faced seminary graduate to a bunch of high school students, God, being rich in mercy, would take me from my wandering and He would sprinkle clean water on me and clean me up from my idols and give me a new heart and a new spirit. He would remove the heart of stone from my body and He would put in me a heart of flesh and He would place His Spirit in me and cause me to walk in His way and to obey His rules. I turned from seeking rebellion to seeking Christ because He met me in that moment and did the promise of the new covenant that Ezekiel looked forward to. Not because I was looking. You guys who have been around a while know my story. I was looking for something other than Jesus. In John 1, 12-13, By response of faith to the action of the Father to take me from my wandering and cause me to be born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, He has made me His child. The rebellion caused my death and the rebellion gave me my sentence of death. I was deserving of nothing but the death promised to my parents and all their descendants if they rebelled. All of us were dead. All of us were in our sin that we inherited from our father, Adam. But we learn in our text today, we learn in our text today this glorious blessing. I mean, remember, Paul doesn't present this passage as a curse. He says this is our blessing in Christ. We learn in our text today that Father, desiring to be merciful and highlight His grace as well as His justice, blessed us in Christ with our election to life to rescue us from the sentence of death in order that we may praise Him for His glorious grace. These texts share my story. And they tell your story. So what do we learn? We learn... Some very important things here. In verse 4, we learn that Father in His grace chose us before time. He says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Father's grace to rescue us from the rebellion took place before time and antedated human need. This makes the Father's work free of influence by any decision he would foresee me making because I would not be capable of making it due to my rebellious state. And this absolutely positively changes my worship. You see, I don't worship because it's good for me, I worship because I don't worship because I made a good decision and my lost friends just couldn't see the logic in the whole thing. And they remain due to their folly and sin. That's not why I worship. I was looking to hook up. And Jesus in His grace found me wandering and brought me a new heart. I worship because that's what's due the Father for rescuing me from rebellion. When I could not or even was not looking to rescue myself. Listen to the words of one of my favorite songs we sing. I love this, absolutely adore this song, and I was reading through my notes. I was singing it to myself, and I'm not going to sing it because it'd be terrible. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. You guys know that song? These guilty hands are raised, filthy rags are all I bring. And I come to hide beneath your wings. These holy hands are raised, washing the fountain of your grace. And now I wear your righteousness. I got the whole song printed in my notes. I'm not going to read it to you. That was for me, not for you. So the fact that it's not because of any merit found in me, but simply because He is gracious and kind, I come and I offer worship. Because the opportunity to worship was not due to my good thinking, it was due to His good grace. Thanks be to the Father and the Son and the Spirit for His work to rescue us, when we could not and would not rescue ourselves. But notice verse 5. Father's reasons for choosing His people are in Himself and full of love. Listen to this. In love He predestined us according to the purpose of His will. Father is love as well as doing justice rightly. Far from arbitrary and cold, Father's rescue of a redeemed humanity as the gift to the Son is full of love for us and love for the Son. I have a very, a footnote that's not real long, but it's loaded with passages from John on this glorious reality that John presents in the perfect tense verb. When Jesus says these strange things, and listen, this is why you need to read the Gospels. You need to pay attention to Jesus. Jesus says things that, that totally go against human logic. And they're easy to just read over. And we read them in our devotional reading and we move on and we don't think through the implication of them. But Jesus says things like this, and and I put them in the footnote for you to read. All those the Father has given to me. Who has the Father given to you? And uses perfect tense verb, this verb that we don't use in English, but it's a verb that is a past action and it's completed in the past and the results carry on indefinitely into the future. That has implication. And if we believe in the inerrancy of scripture, and we do, we understand that, that Jesus is speaking to the Father about some people he's given him as a, as a gift. This is why the church is precious. Because the church is a gift to the Son from the Father. A redeemed humanity that He's going to go to the cross and buy by His blood. And Jesus says in John 17, Of those you've given Me, I will lose none of them. You know what that means? If you're in Christ today, it's not because of a good decision you made because you could good decision yourself out of it. It's because father gave us to the son of redeemed humanity and he would die to purchase us and to make us his bride and he will not lose any of his your security as a believer is tied to this truth your security is not in you i've about walked away 23 times i've nearly quit the faith far too many times to be comfortable I can't hold myself on. I'm a logical thinker. And that will get me in deep trouble. But Father, in love for the Son and for us, was gracious when we were wallowing in our filthiness and our sin. Not coming after Him because of the curse of the fall. And in order to show love, He showered on us mercy. Father is love as well as rightly doing justice. That's not arbitrary and cold. The fall, Adam, that was cold. But Father, being rich in mercy, gave the Son a precious gift, and the Son, being full of mercy, died to secure it. Go read those passages. Look at the footnote. Read them. Unpack them. Let the Holy Spirit teach you. But Paul doesn't end there. What are His purposes? What are the stated purposes of Father's good elective grace? Remember, Paul says this is a blessing. He says this is a blessing. What are the purposes? Well, he states them in verse 4 to 6. The first one found in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that, that's the purpose clause, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. One of His stated, the first of three stated purposes in this passage is that of sanctification. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. One of the false notions about the doctrine of election is that people are, if they're chosen, then they can do whatever they want to and it doesn't matter. That sounds good if the Father operated by fallen human logic, but He doesn't operate on faulty fallen logic. The Father operates off of truth. And He stated His truth in His Word. And the Word is the record of the Father's truth. And Scripture tells us that He chose us, that He would make us holy and blameless before Him. In other words, that new covenant passage in Ezekiel, if you're in Christ, you can't like sin. It tastes bad. You want to know why? Why? Because he promised that he put his Holy Spirit in you. And you know what happens when you sin and the Holy Spirit's present? Why was I so attracted to that? This is that Romans 7 conflict Paul had. You're like, that looks good. You do it and you're like, "Ah, that was horrible. Why did I do that? You know what I'm talking about? Why is that? It's because Ezekiel, that promise of the new covenant, he took out a rebellious heart and put in a heart of flesh and he placed his Spirit in you and he causes you to walk in his way. This is why John will say in 1 John chapter 3, if you're in Christ, you can't remain in sin. It just doesn't taste good. It's bitter. It's death. And we run to life. Why? Because we've got the Spirit in us. So you know what? If you're in Christ, you know what will happen? You will run from sin. And hey, check it out. You're going to give in. This is the glorious truth of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Even though we fight against the fallen nature of this flesh, the Holy Spirit won't let us stay. This is why repentance is the characteristic of the believers. Because we're like, why did I... God, the things I want to do so hard, and the things I don't want to do are so easy. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. And he starts Romans 8, 1. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's not your good works. It's Christ Jesus' good works on your behalf. And so therefore, Christ did this that we would be made holy and blameless before Him. In other words, Father's good and gracious redeeming of humanity was to take an unholy, reproachful, 20-year-old, unregenerate, missionless guy like me and make me holy and blameless. One of the glorious facets of the gospel. is that the father takes sinners. And as we talked about last week. He turns them into saints. And then he proceeds to actually cause their behavior. To come in line with his truth. Hey good news saints. This morning if you're wrestling with sin. It's okay. He won't let you stay there. He will work you toward righteousness. He promised that. That before Him, you would be holy and blameless. You know, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I have a little note here. I have like a long note, and I'm going to try to speed through it. If I ask you to state the Ten Commandments, probably all of you could do it. Maybe not. I'm not sure I can. Oh my gosh, He's not saved. I get lost in the middle of them. I forget which one goes where. And so I'll be like, is that 2, 3, or is that 7? I'm not sure. But by and large, we could probably, most of us, get all of them. But how many of us actually read verse 2 before we get to the list of 10? The indicative comes before the imperative, and you can't reverse the order. The indicative comes before the imperative, you can't reverse the order. Order. You see, the Father graciously chose Abraham when Abraham wasn't looking for him. And when his people were later rescued from Egypt and brought to the desert to worship, this is what the Father gave them in the law. Here's verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then and only then does Father give them the law. The law does not precede verse 2. Verse 2. The imperative does not come before the indicative. They are His people. Why? Because they're in Abraham who believed by faith. Because He chose them to be His people and therefore He gives them the law. Not that they might become His people by keeping it, but because they are His people and need to learn what it is to imitate His holiness. The indicative comes before the imperative, and you cannot reverse the order. The indicative is, you're my people. I brought you out of slavery. Therefore, here's how you need to start looking like me. If the imperative comes before the indicative, then we would have to keep a standard to become his people. Any of you good at keeping that standard? You all got on mixed fabric clothing right now, and you just broke the law. Y'all guilty. But you know what? The law doesn't come before the indicative. Indicative comes before the imperative. Meaning, if you're in Christ today, it's not because of your own doing, it's because of His mercy and grace. And therefore, we have the Scripture so that we know how to imitate Him because we are His. Ezekiel 36, 24-27, that glorious new covenant promise, we get justified, receive a new heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. We get a new spirit. We get the Holy Spirit. All of which causes to walk in the way of the Lord Jesus in delight, not duty. This is the promise of the new covenant. When Jesus saved us, He justified us and gave us a transformed soul that now delights to follow the Father's way. This new us combats the flesh to bring it in line and action with the standards of being one of Father's beloved children. The Bible calls this Sanctification. And it's the precious gift of those who are in Christ. Aren't you glad that he's the one doing the sanctifying, not you? I, great example. We kind of told you it's like 7,000 degrees. We came in and Emmett was spotting me. I was walking up the ladder that goes all the way up to the, going up the ladder. And it opened this steel door to get out on the roof. And like, I'm not afraid of that kind of stuff. But I looked to the latch and there was a big brown recluse about this big looking at me and his eyes were bulging and venom was coming out his fangs. And I, because I don't like spiders, so he had to be that big at least. And, and Emmett knows what I said. I'm not going to tell you what I said, but he heard me. <laughs> he heard. Jesus heard. I'm glad that I don't have to keep a standard to be sanctified. Because sometimes I just default to my flesh. And my cleaning up has nothing to do with my performance but the grace of Jesus Christ to rescue awful people like me. But verse 5 tells us the second reason for His gracious gift and this blessing in Christ when He says He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Do you know in all the Old Testament, Kent Hughes gives us a footnoted Hughes here, in all the Old Testament, God is only referred to His Father 14 times. And according to Hughes, these references are rather impersonal. But something amazing happens in the Gospels because the Gospel writers record Jesus using Father more than 60 times in reference to God. This was Jesus' go-to when referencing the Father. The lone exception is when He's on the cross Teaching about what's happening in that moment through the Messianic passage in Psalm 22 when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the lone exception. Jesus used the common Aramaic word that a child would use to address their daddy, Abba. This is huge. Jesus was, by example, living the reality of what he came to make a reality for those of us who would repent and believe the gospel. This became the understanding of those who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And I want you to listen to Paul's words in Romans 8, 15, and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Then in Galatians 4, 4 4-6, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that, purpose clause, purpose clauses are big in your Bible. If you're into the why, purpose clauses tell you why. So that, so that, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son in your hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. J.I. Packer, in his little work called Knowing God, which I've said it's a top five must read for all Christians. Packer's the reason you'll often hear me say Father when other people simply say God. I'm going to quote you a passage from, from Packer here. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as His Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Do you have that spirit of adoption? Do you sense that God is Father? Do you think of Him and address Him as Father or just some distant, unfeeling God? Here John 1, 12-13, But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, if we can't come to Him as Father, we may not have Him as our Father. He is Father, and if you have not believed the gospel that makes God Father, then repent of the lie, the rebellion, keeping you from knowing Father, Abba, and believe the good news. One of our glorious blessings in Christ, and being seated with Christ in the heavenly places, is that we are adopted as children and brought into the family and have all the family resources to do the family work of subduing the nations with the good news of the family, Jesus. One final purpose, Paul states. For the Father's good elective work is found in verse 6. He says in verse 6, To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. To the praise of His glorious grace which he's blessed us in the beloved. Our election for sanctification and adoption is to the praise of His glorious grace. If these passages don't bring us to praise, which Paul here says they are to do, then the problem lies with us, not the Bible or the clarity of Scripture. We have to understand the text here is not ambiguous. The 2 here in verse 6, that starts verse 6, is the overarching purpose clause for verse 4 and 5. That's its grammatical purpose. He chose us to sanctify us. He predestined us to adopt us. And He sanctifies us and adopts us so that we might praise Him for His glorious grace. You're made to worship. You're made to worship. Father's ultimate purpose in our sanctification and adoption is that holy children may worship Him for His glorious grace. Listen to me very carefully right now. If you walked in that door this morning feeling condemned for the rebellion and you're in Christ, that's not from God, it's from the evil one. He did that work of sanctification and adoption so that you could come unchained and make much of Jesus for cleaning you up and making you a child. Made to make much of Him. Remember, our status due to Adam's rebellion is that we're dead. But in Christ we've been made alive that we may sing of His grace and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. So in conclusion, as we draw this down, if passages like this cause consternation, I have one application for you that will give you a framework to make it all come together. You ready? Here it is. The completion of the Great Commission is guaranteed through the work of the kingdom in the community of His kingdom, the church. The completion of the Great Commission is guaranteed through the work of the kingdom in the community of His kingdom, the church. You see, we don't have to wonder whether or not the gospel is powerful enough to call forth the dead to life. Romans 1:16 ought to be memorized by every believer. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to every everyone who believes. You notice what Paul didn't say there? He didn't say the gospel is a vehicle that empowers man to be something he's not. The gospel is not a self-help tool. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel calls forth those that Jesus died to secure. And he gives them the precious gift. We'll get to this in Ephesians 2. He grants to them the precious gift of faith that they may believe and be saved. We don't have to wonder if the Father will call forth his church from the nations as we go. It will happen. There is no failure in our actions to make Jesus big globally and locally. We may have temporary setbacks, but the kingdom is not set back. Actually, listen, actually engage in evangelism. This is where people's minds get blown because they don't understand. They just have a bunch of misconceptions. And when you find a good Presbyterian or Reformed Baptist that actually does evangelism and preaches the gospel, it blows their misconceptions up. Like, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. Actually engage and preach the gospel cold, coldly to people who don't know. you hear me? We've got a stash of Bibles that we put out on the table they're nice Bibles. They're little Bibles, ESV Bibles. Go downtown and actually give them out to people. Really? I do. Some of us do. I've never had a person turn out a Bible and every now I put my name and phone number in there and email address and every now and then I get a call. Hey, I'm going to this church up the street. I read and I believed. I mean, you can't. There's you can't fail. Does that make sense? There's no failure in that. Isn't that cool? Actually, engage in taking the gospel to people who don't know. Be observant and take note of the eyes and the emotive and physical response to the gospel. Take note of who, when, and how transformation takes place. They don't have to come to Three Rivers Community Church if they believe the gospel. Just somewhere where they preach the Bible. Actually get in front. Hey, you know we have a Muslim center here in Rome? The only Christian, I've talked to them. The only Christian that engages them are those who show up on Friday to tell them they're going to hell. And that's true, they are going to hell. But there's a little better way to engage them. Take them to lunch. You know they actually believe in Jesus. They just don't believe He's God. I mean, how, they believe better theology about Jesus than the average unrepentant Roman. Actually get in front of a hard and dyed-in-the-wool Muslim and befriend them. And watch the Holy Spirit steer the conversation to the gospel. Take note of who's driving the process. And watch transformation take place. Actually go to unreached people groups where the gospel's never been. Engage a dyed in the wool unbeliever whose fresh ears are there for the hearing of the gospel and watch great things happen. You will be absolutely, utterly astounded at the circumstances to watch them come to faith in Christ. And it will be backward of what you think. And maybe what you've ever experienced. You'll discover this freaky reality that Holy Spirit sometimes, I know this is crazy for some of us logical thinkers, but sometimes Holy Spirit gives them dreams about you before you meet them and they have dreams about you giving them the book in which they find truth about Jesus. And then they actually meet you and you give them the book and they believe the gospel. This happens all the time. Our M's and our place are always telling us these stories. We just witnessed it in October with these eyes. They, dr- you, you weren't planning on that. I didn't know this guy's name. I didn't know I'd be in the back of a van on the way between Capitol and, and River City. I didn't know what the circumstance, I didn't know who I'd be riding with, but he had the dream that we would be there with the book. Can you explain that to me? Apart from the good grace of God to do a work actually engage and go and do and watch who drives the glorious process and some things will happen, your faith will grow. You will see that the Great Commission cannot fail. This is why we put so much stock in going to places where the gospel's never been. It is a surefire win. Because the gospel never failed. Jesus died to secure those that the Father had given him.